0: Just a heads up, campus features mature content.
1: It's midday. I'm sitting with my brothers, watching TV. We hear a knock on the door. My younger brother, Mihyar goes to the door and opens it. There is a group of soldiers shouting at the door and he said, we want to search the house. And hurry, they, hurry. they kicked the door. Hurry, hurry, hurry. The soldiers storm in with their guns running through the house. Where is the? Where is the? Where are and they kept screaming at us, where are the guns? Where do you hide them? Where are the guns? I said, I'm just a student. I don't know anything. Then they said that, okay, then you will die and your brothers will die with you and then they put us three against the wall on our knees and blindfolded and our hands cuffed and then uh, the soldiers put the guns at the back of our heads and they said for the final time Where are the guns? My name is Mohammed Al Masalma, and during my time on campus, my country was taken away from me.
0: Hey, I'm Albert. Welcome to campus. This is that place in time in our lives where everything changes. Mohammed Al Masalma is one of 40,000 Syrian newcomers in Canada. By now, you've probably become quite familiar with the stories. Families being met by the Prime Minister at the airport with winter jackets, relief and gratitude to Canada for giving them a new home. And in the following months, a more serious tone, with families still struggling to adapt and find work. But now, at a time when the spotlight seems to be dimming, it's important to hear Mohammed's story of how his country was taken away from him. A story that begins in the old city of Dara, with some wise yet ominous words from his father.
1: I was in second grade, so about six or seven, and uh, one day I remember my father took me there to my uh, elementary school by his car, and it was my first day at school, and then the other day he walked me there just so I can learn the way there. And the third day I woke up in the morning and then my father said to me, "Okay, so I took you the past two days to the school, and now I think you are ready to go there alone. I won't be here every day to take you to school, so you're the man of the house. You should be able to go there. And for me, at at that age, it was like a really big responsibility. So uh, I remember that my dad used to take me from a certain way through the old uh, market. The whole street smells like uh, spices. All of the stores were selling spices and uh, textile and clothes. But I always remembered my dad, you know, I heard his voice in my head telling me that, OK, keep walking, just looking forward, don't stop, don't talk to strangers. And uh, it took me like 15 to 20 minutes to get my uh, to my school. And when I got there, I was really so proud of myself. And from that moment I learned that my dad is that type of guy of, you know, he will, like, teach you to do something one day and the other day he will ask you to do it by yourself. You can build uh, confidence in yourself and, uh, you know, ready to face life. During the summer, when we, we didn't have school, my father used to take me to the, uh, the farm, and uh, we had, like, uh, uh, olives, figs, and grapes. And uh, those uh, days are really, like, really tiring. So uh, after a really long day uh, on the farm, my father used to make a fire and we would sit around and have some uh, hot tea with some leftover food from uh, the early morning. And uh, he would tell us about uh, the goldo days where he used to come to this farm uh, with his father. And we would sit around the, the fire really amazed by the stories he would tell us about how people used to live back then. And I always noticed my father that he really loves Syria, but he didn't have any faith in the government. He always will teach us, like, love your country and everything, but, you know, don't expect something from the government to uh, to give you. And he also told us about the stories where uh, the government just can't kill or destroy anything that stands against them. And he specifically mentioned something that happened in Hama, where... Uh, the regime just committed like a genocide there, and they killed like a lot of people. They would come in and rape women and just bomb the houses and just detonate every, every building that they suspect that they have like uh, people against the regime living there. So my dad wanted us to know about that because he didn't want us to speak ill of the government. Otherwise, we will face the same uh, fate the uh, city of Hama faced. So growing up, I was really scared of the government. Not just my dad, but everyone was saying that the government have spies everywhere, so be careful. And uh, I remember my father, he would tell us that when uh, when we wanted to say something about the government, just to whisper it and just to be careful and uh, not to talk to anyone, because the walls had ears,
0: and they will hear you. Then they will, uh, like, put you in jail or even kill you. Those talks around the fire with his father were eye-opening and scary. Whether Muhammad was hearing stories of people being sent to prison for life or the thousands massacred in Hama, his father's message was always clear. No one opposes the Syrian government without paying a price. They were important lessons for a kid growing up in a country run by a dictator. As a leader, he was feared by his people and respected grudgingly by his foreign adversaries. Syria's Hafez al-Assad is dead of a heart attack. Assad's son, 34-year-old Bashar, is poised to replace his father. Educated, erudite, well-traveled and modern, he's the antithesis of his father. After three decades of ruling with an iron fist, Syria's dictator was dead. That culture of fear fostered by Hafez al-Assad was giving way to a sense of hope. Assad's 34-year-old son, Bashar, was ushered into power. A doctor with little experience in the military, he was seen as a progressive president who was ready to lead a more moderate regime. The economy was really blooming and we started to see,
1: like, other TV shows, other channels, and then we had internet, and then we had cell phones, and so we were, like, really overwhelmed with the new stuff. I was like, okay, life is getting better now, and, and I was uh, in high school. And we used to go to uh, internet cafes and start uh, chatting with other people from other countries. And, like, we started to learn what is life like outside of Syria and how people look like uh, outside of Syria.
0: Hello? Where are you Alaska. Alaska, you're from America. I'm from
1: Syria. And it was like really big thing oh, to see people from other countries, like video chat with them was, OK, what is life there? How is life there? And they would tell us, OK, I can do whatever I want. I, I'm going to hang out with my friends. And there are boys and girls are hanging out together. We are back in Syria. We're not allowed to. And I was like, well, oh my God, there's a new, a new life out there. This is like from another planet for us. But the weird thing is that while I was talking to people and when they ask me, where are you from? And I say, Syria, no one knew where that is. But if I said that, okay, it's next to Iraq, then they say, oh, it's like a war zone there. I said, no, 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 this is another country. We're just next to them. We are safe, We're, everything is all right here. So up till 2006, everything was good. And then, uh, yeah, 2007, I went to university. I started living the student life, you know, getting busy with the studying, hanging out with friends. But then when, you know, started to like feel the agony of the students failing in subjects in classes and other people just acing those marks and you already know them that they're not smarter than you and they are acing marks and you're not you start wondering what is going on. And then I had a friend who's studying in the same major as me, but he's older than me. And he was telling me how some students have privileges and their families are like higher up in the government. So with one phone call to the professor, and then they they will have the mark they want. And I was like, seriously? I mean, we are in the university. This is like uh, the highest educational institution you're going to get. And uh, my friend were laughing at me and it's like, Why are you laughing? He said, hey, welcome to Syria, my friend. Like, before I came to university, I had this idea in my mind that I'm going to live in the dream since I'm studying the thing that I love. And then when my friend came and told me about this stuff, I was like, so there's no dreams? He said, no, you can dream as much as you want, but they will never come true.
0: It was a brutal reality check and one of the first real lessons Mohammed would learn on campus in Damascus. A dictator may be dead, but nothing had changed. For the next three years, Muhammad kept his head down, studied hard, and didn't rock the boat. But in that fourth year, everything changed. The Arab Spring was sweeping through the region, and Syrians were quietly taking notice.
1: This is what popular uprising looks like. After weeks of scenes like these across the country, it appears to be the end for Tunisia's president after 23 years in power. Listen to that crowd. That's what they've been waiting for. Hosni Mubarak
0: has gone. There are very few moments in our lives where we have the privilege to witness history taking place. This is one of those moments. This is one of those times. The people of Egypt have spoken. Their voices have been heard. And Egypt will never be the same.
1: After what happened in uh, Arab Spring, Tunisia and then Libya and then uh, Egypt and then uh, Yemen, like every president back in the airport was like really stressed and, you know, cautious about what is Who's next? What country is next? And uh, you, you can, like, feel the tension in the air. Some of them will, you know, just at the edge of their seats, just waiting for something. They just wanted to, you know, someone to break that fear. They're waiting for, the, like, the first spark to... And then they will lit the fire. And... Uh, I remember, I guess it was like the midweek and I was in the university and I received a call from a friend of mine who was back in Daraa and he told me, man, be careful. And when I asked him why, he said, just something is happening. There's a lot of tension in Dara." And he said, I can't talk over the phone, but when you go back home on the weekends, just contact me and we can, you know, get together and talk about it. So when I went back home and I I went to visit this friend and I asked, what is going on? And he said, well, there's there's a bunch of kids wrote this graffiti on the wall of their school. And the writing says that it's your time now, doctor. And of course, it means that now it's your turn, uh, the president, because he's an eye doctor. Uh, So now it's your time to fall. For the forces and the spies to see this, it was like really slap on their faces. And then they went crazy. They went just, like, searching for those kids around the school and the neighborhood, who did that, who did this. And when they arrested about 15 kids, the age of uh, 11 till 13. And uh, I remember there are some photo leaked for the kids, which uh, some of them are, like, burned with cigarettes. Uh, there are some burn marks on their faces. And some kids, are, have they had their uh, fingernails Pulling out, and uh, some of them just were beaten with you know with whips and wood sticks and something like that. And people people got really angry, especially when they knew that kids are being tortured. And people started going out and protesting. Wait.
0: It was the middle of March, 2011, when those protests erupted in Dara. At the time, Muhammad was just a few streets away from his family home, visiting for the weekend. So he was
1: at home, I'm sitting with my brothers on our balconies, and just screaming and singing what the other people in our neighborhoods are uh, singing. And then I, I heard a lot of fire shots. My house was really close to that street, so me and my brothers, we went there to that uh, street.
0: And uh, we
1: saw all those people laying on the ground. Some of them are still alive screaming. And uh, because it was rainy, a rainy day, there's this uh, huge river of blood pouring down the street of those people who are being killed. I I was really shaking. I couldn't believe my eyes. Is this happening in my city? Is this happening in Syria? What is going on? I felt like I'm paralysed. I want to do something, but I couldn't. My inner self is saying, do something, do something. But I am standing there, just not able to do anything. Just I'm, I'm looking to my friend. And he was like, just stay down, Muhammad. stay down. They will kill you, Muhammad. They killed a lot of people. They, they, they won't spare you. Just hide here. And I was really sad. And I, I wanted to cry, but I was like, like frozen in my place. I couldn't move. I couldn't do anything. This is a city draped in black and a city raging with anger. For the past week, Daraa has been burying their dead. Demonstrators killed while clashing with security forces. Dozens are believed to have died. People here say at least 150, far higher than the figure of 37 provided by the state. Living in my city in Daraa, I knew that people won't stay calm about this. I knew that something big will happen next day, and it did. People from other villages, like really remote villages, came to the city just to support the people. When they heard that people are being killed and the kids are being tortured for nothing, they were coming from everywhere. And from that day on, there was like, every day there was a protest. And every day they were, the forces, they were killing people. Oh my God, it was like the best feeling in the world while protesting. Having the freedom to say whatever you want after like 40 years of oppression in Syria, this is, this is priceless. This is, this is the best thing that could ever happen to Syrians. And this is the main reason that the whole thing started. We wanted freedom. When you look at the, the faces of the people around you in the protest and see how much they are happy and how, how strong they are shouting for their freedom, you can see that's how much passion we had for this. There is the really touching song that talks about uh, another city, which is called Homs. Uh, And uh, what happened in Homs is really horrifying. I mean, with everything that happened in Syria until now, the the city that received the most horrific scene was there. And there's a song called Homs al-Adiyya, which uh, means in English that although that you are really far away from us, our hearts goes with you. It has a really deep, deep meaning. It shows the solidarity and the unity of the Syrian people, no matter how the regime wanted us to be divided, but in seeing the people and hearing the people sing that song in such a beautiful tune, oh my god it's 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 priceless. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I had you, I
0: In the first weeks and months of the revolution, there was a strong sense of unity among protesters. But the siege of Homs was a warning sign of the dark days to come. Shortly after Mohammed and these protesters were singing songs of solidarity for Homs, the Assad regime turned its attention to Dara.
1: I was at home sitting with my family in uh, our special room where we sit and watch TV and play cards and stuff. And then they they cut the electricity. And then we heard heard this really loud noise that coming from far away. It was like, okay, something serious is about to happen. And when we went to the balcony of our house, we we saw tanks just driving down the streets, the, the main road. And then the, those black uniformed ASF guys were on foot, talking on their walkie-talkie and putting people on roofs and snipers and all that. So it was really overwhelming. And then uh, everything started. Fire shots and uh, bombs in the old city. And uh, whenever we wanted to just go on the balcony or you know, look from the window, they will fire shots in the air to tell us, don't look, go inside. So you couldn't leave the house, ever. So Dar'al and the siege was like ghost city because checkpoints doesn't allow anyone to go out. And in, on every roof of the building there were snipers and tanks that are patrols roaming around the city just looking for something, if something's moving or someone is in the street or something. We, we couldn't do anything. It's just like you, you get crazy if the, and bored and you, you, you would not know what to do just like listening to the shots fires and the bombs would be four, 24/7 they they didn't stop at all like every every like 10 seconds you there would be shot fires and then bombs and shillings, and everything it didn't stop you're hearing these bombs, and you, you're thinking of the people are just like, are being killed because of those bombs. And my aunts and my uncles are there, and my, my grandparents' house uh, is there. And so uh, I always th- I was thinking about them. I was like, What's going on with them? What is happening? Are they still alive? And my father was always worried, and uh, I, many times I found him crying, worried about his sisters. I remember at one night we heard a lot of fire shots, and we. I remember my mother came. Uh, she was screaming and shouting, "Go in! Your father has been shot! I'm not joking! Your father has been shot!" It was like, "This is this is crazy! This has just happened!" and and I, I was really shocked and I was shaking and breathing like like heavily. I was like, "What what what should I do?" He said, "Well, bring me the first aid kit." I was like, "Where is it?" He said, in the car. And the car was just in front of my house. So I first thing I did is I grabbed the key, uh, car keys and then went downstairs, opened the door. And I, and I heard the fire shots from the sniper who just fired at my father. And I hear the bullets next to my ears. Like, I hear this sound of the bullet and then hit the street. So I hid behind the car first and then I j- just touched my way to the just to find the door. And uh, I, after I opened the door, I, I was looking for the first aid kit under the seats, the driver. So I took it out, closed the door, and just waited for the sniper to take it easy a little bit. And then I ran back to the house. And thank God I, he didn't hit me.
0: Mohammed was lucky to make it back into his house alive that night. His father was also lucky that the sniper round went straight through his leg without hitting an artery. The family was shaken, and if there was any sense of relief, it was short-lived.
1: It's midday, I'm sitting with my brothers, watching TV a knock on the door. My younger brother Mihiar goes to the door and opens it. There is a group of soldiers shouting at the door and he said, we want to search the house and they they kicked the door. The soldiers storm in with their guns running through the house. And they kept screaming at us, where are the guns? Where do you hide them? Where are the guns? I said, I'm just a student, I don't know anything. And then they said that, okay, then you will die and your brothers will die with you. And then they put us three against the wall on our knees and blindfolded and our hands cuffed. And then uh, the soldiers put the guns at the back of our heads and they said, for the final time. Where are the guns? And then uh, my, my father said, what, what do you want to do with my kids? What are you doing? What are you doing? There are no guns here. My kids are just students. They don't deal with guns. They, they don't know, who, what are you talking about? And he said, okay, then we will take them to the division and ask them questions. So they took us to the cars. And I remember that I was bought in a pickup car with my brothers. And all the way there we were blindfolded and I was like trying to take a peek under the blindfold just to see where we are, where we're going. And they were telling us, okay, we will take a really good care of you once we are there. We will like treat you like princesses.
0: Next week on campus,
1: I was like laying down on the ground shaking while he's just laughing. And he told me that I, I won't stop until you tell me. If
0: you don't give me what I want, you know what, what I will do. Mohammed's story of torture and torment.
1: I consider myself fortunate to have the opportunity that I, I left Syria. Every time like, I think about what is going on in Syria, I mean, honestly, the people who are dead now, they are relieved. They don't have to feel and live that life again. But what really saddens me now is that be- the people who are still under torture and in prison, and they are forgotten.
0: Campus is produced by Eric Van and me, Albert Lowe. The senior producer is Sean Brocklehurst. If you want to hear more life-changing stories on campus, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. Give us a shot on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Hit us up at CampusCBC. And hey, think you've got a story to share or might know someone who does? We want to hear from you. Get in touch by emailing us, campus at cbc.ca. Thanks for listening. Take care.